Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're in Los Angeles to talk with one of the handful of Democrats hoping to flip congressional seats in Southern California. That's right. Christy Smith is here with us. She's taking on sitting Republican Congressman Mike Garcia in their third matchup. Last time she lost the seat in Northern Los Angeles County by only 333 votes. And now it's been redrawn in redistricting to be a bit more friendly to Democrats. But first, Scott, let's talk a couple things all of them related to our governor. First up, a sitting Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Kantil Sakaue announced she will not seek re-election and will be stepping down come the end of the year, um, which gives Newsom, what, his 800th judiciary appointment? <laughs> well, you know, the third to the highest court. But yes, uh, it'll be important. And, you know, she is one of just two remaining justices appointed by Republican governors, the other one being Carol Corrigan, both of them appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. So this is, you know, a far cry from the court, uh, you know, in the Duke Majin Wilson era. It's very, you know, relatively liberal. And Kantil Sakaue herself, you know, was a Republican. She left the party over Donald Trump and all of his uh, yelling about uh, immigration. In fact, she took him on over uh, ICE agents in some of the courthouses. So, yeah, she's stepping down. Newsom will get to a point, either elevate somebody to become chief justice who's already there and then pick another justice. But he's going to have a big appointment to make. Well, and unlike the fights we see in D.C. over the Supreme Court uh, in our nation, you know, this is really, I think, less about political philosophy and more about management, right? I mean, you are the face of this court, but you're also the person who has to advocate for funding from the legislature, like you said, standing up to ICE, really laying down sort of what the, you know, the gamut on all of these things that are not, they're political, but they're not, right? And she was really masterful, I think, at that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Ron George, who left the job, uh, recommended her to Arnold Schwarzenegger because she's a pretty good administrator. They had some very unhappy uh, lower court uh, judges that were giving uh, Ron George a hard time. And she's kind of smoothed a lot of that out. There were issues around the IT, the technology that the court had adopted. But 
you know, all that kind of went away, and she's been very collegial. She, uh, as you said, there have not been these nasty dissents in four to three decisions. No. You know, it's been, you know, a pretty uh, collegial uh, court, and it wasn't always that way. Right. Uh, and I think it's partly due to her, her and management. And she's lovely. I mean, hopefully we can get an exit interview. Yes. We've had her on before. Um, well, the other big sort of thing percolating up this week is a burgeoning fight over Proposition 30. This is a ballot measure that's going to be on this November that would uh, enact, a, I think, 1.75% income tax on top earners in California. That money would be earmarked for things like electric vehicle, charging stations, infrastructure, wildfire suppression. And it's being backed by Lyft, uh, the, of course, ride-sharing company, among others. But interestingly, this week, you know, you'd think it's California. You want to tax billionaires. You want to put that towards What's environmental to like? stuff. <laughs> well, the governor doesn't like it, and neither does the Teachers, Teachers Association. Yeah, but the Democratic Party, the Cal Democratic Party, has endorsed it. And yeah, you're right. It's a, it's kind of a, um, Newsom describes it as a carve-out because the money is going to be used to help subsidize the purchase of electric vehicles. And of course, Lyft and Uber are required to have, you know, cut their emissions dramatically to buy more electric vehicles. And so Newsom and the teachers are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is a special handout for uh, a special interest, Lyft. Of course, Newsom didn't mind that they got a, uh, a carve-out from Prop 22 a few years ago. Remember, uh, they put, uh, they carved out, they and Uber put Prop 22 on the ballot to carve out a, uh, an exemption to themselves at the labor code, and Newsom was neutral on that. But this this special interest he doesn't like, uh, this carve-out. But here's why, and it's not like something normal people understand, but it's because over half of our state revenue comes from personal income taxes, and most of that is from wealthy people. And a f- good 40-plus percent of that is earmarked for schools, right? And so the minute you start then walling off extra money, even if it's a new pot of money, you're essentially you know, cutting into money that would have gone to teachers and sure. other public good, even police officers. I mean, you could go down the Firefighters. List. Well, firefighters probably would like this, <laughs> yeah. right? If it's for wildfires. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, I think the point is that, you know, they, they can't go to the well that many times. They've already gone to the well numerous times to tax the wealthiest right. income earners. This would be, this would hit people earning $2 million and more. Um, and, you know, yeah, as you say, it gets carved out. It doesn't go to the general fund. Uh, and so they don't like that, uh, especially when it, you know, it kind of gores their ox because, yeah, that money would, uh, you know, go to education, schools, teachers, pensions, and all, you know, all kinds of things. Well, from a, a, a political journalist perspective, at least this is shaping up to be an interesting fight, because as we know in this deep blue state, most of what we're paying attention to is actually congressional races. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll be watching. It'll yeah, be kind of interesting. Yeah, and there is other than, I think, the two gambling measures for uh, Prop 26 and 27, there's not a whole lot, in, and the abortion measure, I should say, Prop 1, not that much uh, to interest uh, voters. So this one could, as you said, could become a little more interesting anyway. Newsom versus the Democratic Party. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic congressional candidate Christy Smith. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
you can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we have former state assemblywoman Christy Smith here. She's on the ballot this November in the 27th Congressional District in northern Los Angeles County. It includes Lancaster, Palmdale, Santa Clarita, and a tiny piece of the city of Los Angeles. And she is hoping third time is the charm, taking on a Republican she's lost to twice in a much friendlier district than the last time. Christy Smith, welcome to The Breakdown. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so before we get to uh, this latest campaign, and we want to talk a little bit about your early life. Um, so you were born on a military base in Germany, I, I understand, was. Mm-hmm. and came back to the U.S. when you were six months old. So you probably don't remember much about that part. Only what I see in pictures. <laughs> but you, your family settled in Indiana for the first 11 mm-hmm. or so years of your life. What do you remember about that? How did it impact you? You know, I picked up all of my Midwestern sensibility from the the 10 short years that I spent in Indiana. But, um, you know, I remember great things that are just kind of part and parcel of the Midwest experience, being part of 4-H and having to ride a big yellow bus to school because the school in in a rural community is pretty far away from where you actually live. What does 4-H stand for? Um, it's, uh, I don't even remember what the H's are for now. Horticulture has to be one right, of them. Horticulture, Horses. Right. Um, you know, but yeah, like, exactly. Kind of farm living, um, learning to grow your own food, how to cook your own food. Um, great things like quilting and embroidery and just, you know, overall uh, life skills. You were brought here by your family. Your family moved out to California, mm-hmm. uh, to Santa Clarita when I think you were 11 or so. Almost 11. Almost mm-hmm. 11. Um, why here? Uh, my dad was given a, a job offer here that was a, an offer too good to refuse, and so out we came. And he was a military guy? No, he actually, um, after the military, went into what he was educated for, which was um, production engineering. So he had worked for RCA Records and then came out to California and worked for a um, sound and music equipment company. So this is a little weird transition, but I read somewhere that you said you grew up in a home where there was domestic violence. What was right. your childhood like? Right. You know, this is a tale really of, of different generations. So my parents both grew up in an era where there was a strong focus on family and keeping family together um, and a real sense of shame around, you know, admitting that you had mental health issues. And in both my parents' cases, um, there were lifelong undiagnosed and untreated mental health issues. My dad eventually later got help and was diagnosed with um, bipolar and some other things that he was oh, wow. medicated for. But my mom had been adopted as a young child never had therapy for that because back at a time when the adoption records were sealed, you were with your new family and you never spoke of it again, right? And so a lot of holdover things in both of my parents' cases. My dad lost both of his folks by the time he was a teenager and so had to, along with his older sisters, help support the family. Um, Things that they both would have really been helped by if we were in our current environment where we all admit and acknowledge that mental health is such an important part of our overall health. How, How do you think that has affected the way you look at the world? Uh, I think I certainly have a much higher degree of empathy. I think when I am talking to other families and and hearing about what their experiences are, whether it's issues of domestic violence or economic struggle or things that can put a significant strain on especially the the heads of household in a family and and how sincerely they take, you know, being able to take care of their kids and the toll it does take on somebody's mental health uh, when that's a real challenge. It helps me relate to that in a better way and also to continue to be an advocate for 
increasing our access to mental health services and and creating an environment again where people feel comfortable um, talking about that as part of their life. Yeah, such a different era to your point. Well, I know that you got interested in politics at a lunch with Governor George Duke Majin, but I'm curious before that, was politics something your family talked about? Were they interested or politically involved at all? My mom more so. And I will say my mom was a closet feminist. Again, you know, she grew (laughs) up in the Midwest in a very um, Christian conservative family, uh, but personally held some beliefs, especially after we moved to California. And she was putting herself through nursing school at a California community college and really came into her own um, as a woman and with her own economic independence and how that kind of just moving here changed her worldview and what she thought her potential was and therefore mine. And so while they weren't necessarily overtly political, my mom was certainly engaged in making sure that I knew what my potential was. I read that you originally wanted to be a dentist. Right. (laughs) And you have a very nice smile. Thank you. Uh, And then you went to a a lunch uh, in high school where George St. Page was, which Marisa just alluded to. Tell us about that. What impact that had? Yeah. Well, uh, dentist was definitely until second grade because a lot of dental work went into this smile. (laughs) And so it seemed like the obvious career choice. And then, um, you know, I had really loved history and government as a kid. And in high school, I was our student body president. Our local school superintendent got invited to a luncheon where all the dignitaries were going to be there. Our member of Congress, the governor, I mean, anyone who was anyone was going to be at this lunch. And he could have taken staff and he chose to take his local high school student body presidents. And it it changed my world. The conversation, the presentation, the talks about what was still needed in our then growing community of Santa Clarita in terms of transportation and schools and housing and economic investment. And I thought, this is just, this is amazing. This is people who really care about um, improving the lives of others. And this is the kind of work that I'd like to do. That's interesting. And of course, you are a Democrat and he was a Republican. Right. Did that right. matter to you? And I'm guessing you the Congress I, member was too. Yeah. Look, you know, the, I was, my, my first registration was Republican. Okay. And um, in, in our community in Santa Clarita, much like, you know, Orange County here in Southern California, that's kind of how the community trended. And a lot of the, the things, though, that we were all involved in at the local level were really not partisan at all, right? It really was. It was the roads and bridges conversations and building libraries and, and the things that we all cared about that made us part of this, the great community we were proud to live in. It was a different party back it was, then. It was a different party. It was a very different party back then. And so, you know, I've heard a lot of folks say, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. Very much true in my case, right? And um, reproductive freedom was one of the first things that where I just I couldn't stay with the party line. We do want to get into your your political life, and yeah. uh, that began, I think, with the school board. But I have to ask you about your husband, who I read was in the CIA. I think can you can he you tell was, us, or do you have to kill us? <laughs> I what I can share is that we were both very grateful for the opportunities we had coming out of college at UCLA. I was able to apply to U.S. Department of Education in a program they had called Outstanding Scholars and get a really amazing, cool job right out of college. Um, and so was he. He was in graduate school at the time, and they had a graduate fellowship program at the CIA, uh, which he uh, participated in, and an incredible experience for both of us, really, to be part of our nation's government um, during the Clinton administration. It was really cool. So you came home, um, I think you were pregnant at the time, or back to California, and you've talked about that you had a really dangerous pregnancy that you almost didn't survive. Um, I don't know how much you want to share about that, but I'm curious, especially now that we're having so many conversations with the Roe v. Wade decision. Right. Well, uh, so we were we would have been happy to stay in Washington, D.C., but we were having our first child. And then unexpectedly, at the end of my pregnancy, I was diagnosed with eclampsia. And so um, over six weeks early and during the worst blizzard D.C. had seen in 100 years, um, I started having seizures and my daughter had to be delivered to save both her life and mine. 
And um, we realized after that, because she had complications from being preemie and, and being a little bit at risk, I wasn't going to be able to go back to work right away. And just the the scare and the trauma of it all, um, we reconsidered and we thought, you know what, we really want to be close to family. We, we want to be raising our kids with grandparents and cousins around. So um, made the decision to come back to California. And you did get involved in education. Uh, you joined the school board. You ran for the school board uh, and got elected and reelected, I think, uh, and started a foundation as I well. Did. Yeah. Tell yes. us about that. Why, why education and why a foundation? It was um, the aspect of public policy that I, I love above, above all else. And I'm a nerd and a, a wonk, so I really like all of well, public and, policy. Yeah, that's but. saying something, because education <laughs> policy is dense. Right. It is, <laughs> it's dense, but it's so important. Our public education system is the cornerstone of our democracy, right? And it is one of those jewels and those gems that if we don't polish it up, because it's not in great shape everywhere right now, um, and really support it, and especially support our teachers right now, um, it, it will have down the river consequences for all of us uh, that won't be good. And so it's work that I feel very passionately about, very committed to. And so, yeah, I, it, before I ran for school board, actually, I started this nonprofit foundation because um, public education policy is one of those areas where we have these tremendous unfunded mandates. So the federal government or the state will say, you need to provide X, Y, Z. We don't have the dollars to give you to do that, but, you know, go forth and conquer. And um, it was on the cutting edge of when tech was in classrooms. And so we wanted every kid to have access to a computer and, of course, the software and the licensing to run those computers, huge budget shortfall at the state and our local level. So I started a nonprofit foundation to support uh, purchasing that. And um, then you go on to run for state assembly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've kind of alluded to the fact that your district that you're running in now and just the region has historically turned it a little bit more right, but also has been often purple, right? Yeah. And so in 2016, you ran and lost uh, Dante Acosta. And then two years later in a rematch, you won, I think, by like two points. Right. What did you learn from that first losing campaign? And maybe it's brought, you know, forward into now. Unfortunately, one of the big lessons that I learned was the GOP's unrelenting willingness to really stretch the truth um, and to go after candidates in ways that really distort their record of service and the kind of work they've done for the community. And so figuring out a way to recalibrate that in the 2018 cycle and kind of shore myself up against some of those scurrilous attacks uh, became the difference between uh, defeat and victory. And um, and the assembly was a wonderful place to serve. I had such a great time there. Hmm. Did you did you modify your strategy other than, you know, maybe toughening up a little bit and getting, you know, learning to counterpunch better? I mean, was there something else that you learned about not just running against a Republican, but winning Republican voters? Well, I did, because what I realized is I needed more of an opportunity to get in front of those people in my community who I had already served for nearly a decade on the school board and talk about that work that I had done in a really nonpartisan way, right? And again, doing the kind of public policy work that redounds to the greatest benefit of the community. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking to former State Assemblywoman Christy Smith. She's running for Congress in the 27th District. So... Why Congress? Because as we said, this is your third run. You're uh, y you like rematches, apparently. I do. I do. <laughs> um, and you know, 2019 and 2020 were in some ways uh, not the same campaign, but it was to right. fill part of a term and then obviously come back and 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 be elected. So, uh, what drew you to that job to begin with? Um, you know, my member of Congress resigned. As I mentioned, I was really happy um, serving in our state legislature. It's it's a great place to work. We have done some tremendous things in the state of California and had a balanced budget and really try to make the best of government for everybody who lives here. But 
Uh, when Katie Hill resigned, there wasn't another Democrat in the community uh, with the name ID and the ability to quickly pivot and get a campaign up and running to try to save that seat. And saving that seat is essential to us holding the House majority. And so uh, we leaned in, we put our all into it, but we also didn't plan on running a special election and then a general election campaign um, on the cusp of a world pandemic that really shut everything down. And on the Democratic side, we took it seriously and we valued people's health and lives and safety. We took canvassing off the table for ourselves to be able to do that. And in the final analysis of that general election, that 333 vote difference, there it is. It's a field margin. And in that election, it was a very big turnout, which typically helps Democrats. And I'm just wondering, did you look back at those 333 votes and think, oh, if only I had done X, Y, Z. I Absolutely. Yeah. What were, the, what were the things you wish what, you had done? Yeah. What's the X, Y, Z? Have a field program, um, have an ambitious and aggressive field program, because again, going back to you know the GOP's willingness to really abuse the truth, the best way to disabuse people of the bad, terrible things that they hear about you is to be able to have a conversation with them at their door. And when we can't do that, we can't send our volunteers out to say, you know, that's not accurate what you're seeing on TV. Here's who she really is. That makes a tremendous difference. And again, you know, nationally talking about voter protection, this was a district where the GOP had installed those fake ballot boxes and they were at places like uh, conservative centers and at churches. And so I think this time we are going to be much more mindful of that kind of activity going on that, you know, is outside the bounds of what's legally allowed and making sure we are protecting every voter's vote. How tough has it been, though, to kind of dust yourself off and do this? I've read you you say in part you did it to be a model for your girls. You have two daughters, I believe, in their 20s. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the most important things a candidate has to be able to do is identify their why when they're running. And especially in a situation like this where I'm putting myself out there this one more time. And it's that the America that my daughters and the children behind them will inherit will be the most diverse in her history, facing the greatest challenges, both domestically and globally. And right now, those of us in positions to be able to change what that trajectory looks like are not giving them a toolkit to be successful. So you're running again against Mike Garcia, a fairly conservative Republican, mm-hmm. um, and he is Latino in a district you're running in now that's about a third Latino. Sure. Uh, at a time when, you know, some Latino voters seem to be leaving the Democratic Party. How do you, what's the message for Latino voters, especially those who might be drawn to voting for crossing you know, party line, so to speak, to sure. vote for a Latino. Sure. I would say that the difference really is about your bottom line in your household and whether you can keep a roof over your head and food over your table. And Mike Garcia has shown time and time again, he's not a candidate who's interested in that. I mean, one of his taglines is people should have to fend for themselves. And we are at a moment, given the economy that we have, where this district deserves a representative who's going to go to work every day, making sure that as many people in my district are as em- are employed and employed at as a high pay rate as possible, um, that that they've got their kids in a good school, that they've got health insurance, and they're able to put food on the table. He's not that guy. And his vote record proves it. I mean, uh, things might be changing, but we've been going into this midterm election assuming that there's some pretty strong headwinds for Democrats, the economy, COVID, COVID. Gas <laughs> right. prices. Right. Gas prices. Right. And on the other hand, though, we've had some really you know seismic other things happen, including around school shootings and, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision. When you're out there campaigning in this district, what, is, what are the things that people are bringing up to you? And do you feel like the kind of national mood or narrative, are you seeing that play out or is it different? Yeah, absolutely. But, it, it, you know, it's as different as any individual voter you talk to. Everyone has their own life experience that they're going through at any 
any given moment. So whether you're a family like ours where we're just got kids through college and we're, you know, figuring out how we're going to pay for that on, on the back end. Our seniors are very, very worried about cuts to Medicare and Social Security or given the inflation we have now, if Social Security is going to grow at a pace that they don't have to go back to work. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of seniors in our district, frankly, have to pick up some part time work. Uh, for some families, it's someone's job didn't come back after COVID and they're looking for that career redirect. And how are we going to help them find that new spot that helps them support their family? And for a lot of people, it really is. It's the it's the bread and butter issues. It's getting by day to day. But for some people, it is these big overarching issues like making sure our democracy lasts for the next generation, making sure that women can make their own health care and reproductive choices. And that's going to send them to the ballot box. What about abortion? Because, you know, there's the ballot measure Prop 1 that would enshrine the right to an abortion in the California Constitution. Democrats hope that brings out more of their younger voters and others who might not vote all the time. But with Latinos, especially older Latinos, it might, you know, they might have a different view of abortion, especially if they're more religious. So how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our polling shows that amongst the Latino community, it is still majority support for Roe as decided. And and you're right. And you I mean the original row. The original row. Yeah, not not the Dobbs overturn, but the original row. And even amongst that subset who for religious or whatever other reasons find themselves not in agreement, there is still agreement that they may not agree personally based on religious beliefs. However, they do believe in the rights of others. Uh, to still pursue their own path. And so, you know, there is a, there's a conversation to be had there and there is a pathway uh, for us with those voters. And we definitely intend to have that conversation. What about you brought up sort of the strength or maybe cracks in our democracy? Um, obviously, there's been a lot of attention being paid to the January 6th committee. I know that uh, Mike Garcia did vote against certifying the results of the 2020 election. Is that something you're talking about? Is it something that voters are talking about? Um, and uh, I don't know, I, because it seems like it can be a challenge. It's, it's a complicated issue in yeah. a lot of ways. Right? Yeah, it's a big, complicated issue. But I think a lot of people who have, I've talked to who disagree with him on that vote see the big picture that that vote in saying that he chose not to certify, not just first thing that afternoon when the process started, but after the violence to go back into the House floor and take that same vote again, knowing the potential consequences for the country and the path that that would put us on, that is a non-starter for so many voters in this district. The district has a fair number of veterans, fairly high Air mm-hmm. Force. Uh, Edwards Air Force Base is here. He, of course, Mike Garcia on his website says fighter pilot. Um, how do you speak to veterans? Well, again, you know, range of issues uh, that really impact our local veterans. We actually have one of the largest uh, groups of non-enlisted uh, veterans in Southern California. A lot of them have to go down to Westwood to access their health care. So we talk about health care a lot and how we can make sure that we're bringing essential services that they need closer to home. Housing um, is absolutely an important issue. So one of the things where, you know, rather than pick up a pen, because I haven't had a chance to yet, but I, I pick up a hammer for our veterans out in our community. We have a Homes for Families charity that I've done work with and actually gone out and and helped build homes that are sweat equity housing for our veterans. Uh, But having the door open and being there to hear them out, to appreciate, to acknowledge their service, and also to realize, you know, as you pointed out, there are a lot of them who are in strong disagreement, even if they're on the same political side as Mike Garcia, but with the decisions he's made with respect to January 6th and the big lie and what came after. They just, you know, they've, they've taken that same oath and they disagree with his actions. So if you win day one, what's your first priority? And knowing that, you know, you could go into a Congress where Democrats don't have a majority. 
Sure. I think in the event that we find ourselves in the minority, uh, my path will be to find those members in both parties who are willing to continue with the work of the Problem Solvers Caucus. How can those of us who really just want to get down and leave the partisanship outside the door and focus on the problems facing the country, who are those people and you know what are the things we can start to work on right away? Um, again, I'm very hopeful that public education is one of those things because we're in dire straits right now. We've got states like Florida facing a teacher shortage of 9,000, right, if this is something we don't deal with in the very near term. We're going to be in big trouble. But again, right now and most immediately, making sure that we get America back on a good economic footing, that we get this inflation under control, um, and that we're putting a floor under folks. Um, you know, you were uh, in a race where the governor's race is not that exciting, uh, the Senate race not that exciting, but turnout is going to be critical. You know, sure. How do you motivate people, especially younger voters, to get out and vote? Younger voters is tough. And I will tell you right now, the younger voters that I am talking to, first of all, they have a hard time deciding if there really is much of a difference between the two parties because they feel like neither side is delivering. They feel like neither side is listening to them or really understanding the challenges that they are up against. Younger voters right now care about their economic future. They care about this planet very, very deeply. And they care about gun violence. I don't know a single young voter who has not had to have an active shooter drill at some time in their education in the last several years. And the fact that a high school shooting happened in this hometown, the young people I'm talking about that, uh, talking to about that, really care uh, very deeply about those three things. And we have to we have to meet them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Your daughters give you advice on that sometimes. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Sure Look, they do. I mean, my my youngest is about to be a first grade teacher in two weeks. And I went in to help her set up her classroom last night. And there on the counter is not only the emergency bag, but literally what we've heard about the bucket of kitty litter and uh, the equipment that exists in the event that she's in a long term lockdown because someone violent has entered the school. Um, it really took her other sister and, and me aback. I mean, it's it's one thing to hear it, but to know it exists and to know that my daughter is going to potentially be in that situation. It's horrifying. Yeah. So fun question at the end. We we know you're a big hiker, but I've also read that you're a bachelor, bachelorette fan. <laughs> I am. What are you doing to blow off steam? This is one of many intense campaigns you've been a part of. Yeah. So when I'm traveling, I try to read, you know, I'll, I will pick up a novel and just try to soak in a couple of chapters just to turn the brain off for a little bit. I do guilty pleasure watch Bachelor, Bachelorette just because no you judgment. Really, no judgment. No, you just you don't your 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 brain actually does not have to be on much for, for, to participate in that. And um, you know, time with my dogs, there's nothing better than sitting on the floor with your dogs and just, you know, goofing around for a little bit. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Yep. We love our puppies. All right. Well Christy Smith, candidate for Congress, thank you so much for your time today. Thank Thanks you. For coming in. Appreciate it. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And special thanks to our host at KCRW, our sister station in LA, for putting us up this week. And our producer this week, Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. And we also got some help from Mike Stark here at KCRW. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. 
And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.